Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk um, a little bit about Australia during the 1960s and its um, intervention in the Vietnam War um, and moreover Australia's relationship with its neighbours in Asia. Now I have been remiss in uh, not mentioning Australia and New Zealand more in the podcast and it's something I'd really like to uh, redress and the, the simple reason why is I talk about what I know and I talk about what I learn and you know I'm talking about this now because I've been reading more on the subject of late. Um, so anyway without further ado let's start by talking a little bit about Australia um, before the war. One of the key objectives of Australia at the Paris Peace Conference, because obviously Australian soldiers in the Anzac Corps had uh, fought <coughs> in Europe uh, and the Middle East uh, for the British Empire, um, the Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes at the Paris Peace Conference uh, went to ensure that Australia gained territories in the Pacific, particularly the island of Nauru, uh, which was a, a German colony, and that Australia, Australia's interests in the Pacific um, and uh, the uh, Indian Ocean uh, were defended. Um, the Australians saw a very different world emerge uh, in 1918, one where the British Empire was significantly weakened and a newly assertive Japan um, to the north was able to extend its influence into the Pacific and the uh, Australians, like uh, America, uh, were under no illusion uh, that Japan was the potential aggressor of the future um, and a source of, of potential conflict. So Australian military planners and uh, British military planners as well um, were at loggerheads throughout much of the 1920s and 30s on creating a realistic plan for imperial defence for um, the Pacific and Southeast Asia. And the, the model that is uh, proposed was the, the Singapore strategy, whereby a large fleet would stay at the uh, naval base at Singapore um, would uh, take on the Japanese Navy in a um, head-on conflict, uh, defeat it, 
and then surround the Japanese islands and essentially starve them into submission in the same way that the uh, German um, Second Reich, the Kaiserreich, had been starved into submission by the Royal Navy during the First World War. And the uh, the strategy was um, welcomed by some Australian um, strategists and criticised by, by others. That um, It meant that Singapore would be the first line of Australian defence. And if Singapore fell, then Australia was extremely vulnerable, and the the next line of defence would essentially be Darwin. Uh, you know, um, and and this is basically what happens when Singapore falls in early 1942, and about eight thousand Australian soldiers are taken captive there. Um, they'd simply turned up within the last few days of the fall of um, uh, for Singapore to fall. Many had never even been able to fire a shot uh, before General Percival signed the surrender to Yamashita, and the um, the sense of outrage is uh, is palatable. Following the swift fall of Indonesia and the islands all the way up to uh, Timor and New Guinea, um, Australia is officially uh, in a continent under siege. Now, there's been a number of historiographies on the question of whether or not Australia was likely to be invaded by the Japanese. And the, the, the general consensus is that the Japanese probably didn't have the manpower for such a colossal operation, having marched uh, as far as the borders of India and uh, occupying large parts of China and fighting a Pacific war um, against uh, America, the uh, conquering Australia as well, uh, didn't seem feasible. And uh, it had been mooted by certain Japanese um, generals and commanders, but it wasn't a, a, a kind of a, a consensus idea. Instead, what was uh, planned was the strangulation of Australia. What the Japanese knew is that they had started a war they could probably not finish. They had, uh, by not knocking out the American carriers of the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, uh, they had a, a, a task force in the Pacific that could still fight on. And as long as they could fight on, the Americans wouldn't give up, civilian morale, morale wouldn't break, and American civilians, civilian workers would be in factories churning out warship after warship. Um, the Japanese would have to shelve any plans for the full invasion and uh, seizure of, Pearl ha- of, of uh, Hawaii. Um, and it meant that they were in a, a kind of a war of attrition in the Pacific. And so the most dangerous thing that could happen for them is if America landed armies in Australia. And this is precisely what America does. Um, MacArthur, after he scuttles away from um, Corregidor um, and uh, manages to get back to um, dry land, his first port of call is Australia. Um, And he receives uh, some kind of strange, uh, perhaps undeserved hero's welcome in Melbourne. And from there, uh, large numbers of American marines uh, land, train, and um, build up into a fighting force until they are shipped out to places like Guadalcanal. So uh, the uh, strangulation of Australia is really important for the Japanese, landing, uh, taking islands um, around to cut off sea lanes using aircraft and um, submarines and warships uh, would mean that Australia would be brought to its knees 
and would perhaps not be occupied by Japan, but would fit into the, the new uh, Japanese-oriented uh, economic order um, as the British Empire crumbles and the US um, is unable to um, to wage war effectively. Um, so the anxieties of Australia as a, a kind of a, a white European outpost in what appears to be a hostile Asia-Pacific, uh, they don't die easily, and these anxieties really carry on throughout the uh, throughout the remainder of the Second World War and into the post-war era. The ongoing decline of the British Empire um, meant that um, Australia um, had a, a profound sense of, of vulnerability. Um, as by the 1960s, uh, Britain is in full withdrawal from um, the, uh, the Asia-Pacific region, uh, with the exception of places perhaps like Hong Kong. But also, it presented Australia with a, 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 a challenge of uh, the development of national identity, national identity and the development of national identity, um, in that Australia... Um, as a, a dominion and uh, a largely independent one, whilst it still has um, the uh, the king and then the queen of uh, Great Britain as the head of state, it's uh, uh, an almost entirely, uh, by the 1960s, autonomous nation uh, with one uh, particular constitutional upset, which we'll hopefully have time to talk about a bit later. And the Australian um, government... Um, which had been during both world wars uh, interested in uh, the, the the affairs of primarily of Australia, but also in the running of the empire as a whole, um, now has to really reorient itself, and obviously reorienting itself into the American sphere of influence is uh, is the the kind of the obvious step. Now, during the sixties, there is a vibrant counterculture in America, and there have been some um, historians who have implied that really this is simply just imported from America. Um, it's been referred to pre- pre- previously as activism by airmail subscription. But the evidence doesn't really support that. Um, the con- the, the, the um, historical conditions that exist in Australia are different from those in America. Um, there are similar protests and similar uh, struggles, but they're not exactly the same thing. The obvious oppression of Aboriginal people in Australia um, was one of the, um, the the main strands of um, 1960s uh, countercultural activism um, in the, on the continent. Um, and this really uh, always remains as it does in America and the struggles by and for Native American rights uh, as a kind of a really suppressed discourse, a, a thing shunted to the margins of political debate. Um, and it has um, only really in um, the last 20 to 30 years um, really forced itself into the mainstream with them with you know, particular resistance from things like the, the government of John Howard, for example. So in 1962, Australia sent um, 30 military advisers to the South Vietnamese government. One of the main motivations behind doing this is based in this vulnerability that I've just mentioned, in that um, becoming close in foreign policy 
to the United States was um, seen as an essential action um, given uh, the decline of, of Great Britain. That pivot towards uh, Australia uh, during uh, the Second World War, um, which had been carried out by um, John Curtin, um, was uh, continued into the 1960s uh, by the Liberal Prime Minister Robert Gordon Menzies. Um, and the uh, by 1967, Britain's really kind of withdrawn from um, much of Asia. And the... Um, uh, the policy that Australia seems to be embracing, much like the Singapore strategy, was that of forward defence. So by preventing the falling of um, uh, states in the, as, a, as with the domino theory to communism uh, across Asia, you could keep communism um, far as far to the north as possible and as far uh, to the west as possible possible. Um, and this would mean that you would not have to deal with it on your doorstep, i.e., say, Indonesia, for example, which by the late 1960s uh, has its own uh, issues with um, a, a communist uprising and a violent communist, anti-communist purge. Australia, um, in 1954, joins the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation, or SIATO, um, which was the regional version of NATO, um, another kind of uh, uh, plank of uh, American anti-communist containment, along with CENTO, which was um, the Central uh, Powers Treaty Organization of countries like Turkey and Pakistan and then Iran. The um, decision to commit to the Vietnam War was then seen in, in this context, and the fact that Australia had been fighting um, in uh, British Malaya throughout the 1950s as well to put down a communist uprising. And the Australian um, support um, for apartheid South Africa at the time also, uh, as a, a kind of a, a fellow white dominion, um, also can be seen with, within this context. So, so anti-communist um, uh, Cold War politics uh, are um, inextricably tangled with racial politics. Um, and um, Australia had a, kind of a, a significant role to play in uh, ra- giving ratification and justification to, to South Africa. The, uh, ch- any challenge to apartheid South Africa might well have led to questions about Australia's treatment of the Aboriginal people, which um, was not entirely dissimilar. And the Cold War uh, provides uh, a one. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wonderful ideological blanket for both countries, uh, South Africa and um, Australia, um, to uh, be able to ignore challenges 
to racial segregation or dismiss them as simply Bolshevik troublemaking or what have you. Just as with um, the United States, Vietnam enables uh, in um, Australia a whole range of um, previously suppressed discourses on capitalism, imperialism, gender rights, environmentalism, um, the kind of uh, the, the hot topics of the new left to really emerge and become topics of conversation. Uh, imperialist wars invariably empower uh, anti-war activists to also look at connected uh, ideas um, and struggles. And these uh, filter gradually, bit by bit, into mainstream thought. And this isn't helped by the introduction in 1964 by the Menzies government of selective conscription. Um, and the commitment of uh, f- the full commitment of ground troops to Vietnam in April 1965. Um, these are hugely support, hugely um, popular moves to begin with, and opposition gradually develops. Um, and they're based around fairly kind of fragile networks of peace activism and uh, nuclear disarmament um, that had emerged during the 1950s. Um, the universities become the hothouses um, as they do in America and Europe for um, a new left um, that emerges who uh, embraced the um, Vietnamese National Liberation Front as her comrades and allies, much to the rage and anger of Australia's uh, conservative with a small c press. And much of this um, ferment and unrest can be explained quite simply by growing educational, uh, uh, growing educational success in Australia, the boom in university and high school um, secondary high school completion rates, um, and the numbers of students uh, attending universities, particularly from uh, working class and European migrant backgrounds. Uh, one historian, Hannah Forsyth, says that by the mid-1960s, students from a much wider range of backgrounds were enrolling, um, and this challenged the um, the previous um, establishment, uh, pro-establishment elitism of universities that they were, uh, you know, normally sort of factories for turning out members of of the ruling class with ruling class sympathies. Um, the democratisation in Australia of university education in the 1960s had uh, um, interesting, to say the least, results in terms of um, countercultural politics and protest. Now, you might remember me having talked about the German counterculture um, some while ago. It's a long-buried podcast back there somewhere. And the German counterculture had a particular um, relevance, or the Vietnam War has a particular relevance to the German counterculture, in that Germany saw itself, or the West German students, saw themselves um, and their country as an outpost of American imperialism. American B-52s flew on round trips to Vietnam, there was a American airbase at Rammstein, an American hospital for veterans being uh, taken home uh, from Vietnam. And so the um, in Australia, a similar phenomena occurs. In Australia, you have um, the countercultural student body saying, well, what are we going to be? Uh, a poor man's America, an American imperialist outpost, or are we going to become an Asian country? And this is the, these are the sort of terms that they are speaking in. Are we going to become 
uh, a country within Asia. And this, um, there has been a, a vein of this thinking um, uh, that runs really up to the the present day of what exactly is Australia? Is it um, simply uh, an, an Anglo-American stroke European uh, outpost in the Pacific or is it really a country in Asia in its own right? And I suppose as Australia becomes a more diverse society, um, the debate becomes uh, more complex uh, and the and Australia's sense of itself and identity um, becomes uh, begins to starts to change as it becomes less majority um, Ang- Anglo-European white. And this brings us really to the discussion of um, the Australian uh, white Australia policy which really meant that only only white immigration was allowed into Australia, um, which was in, it was introduced um, in 1901, and the policy meant that uh, only white races could immigrate to Australia, and the definition of whiteness um, was extremely racially uh, racially fraught. It's one of the complaints that Japan brings to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and when the America, when America, uh, who um, uh, wanted to prevent uh, Woodrow Wilson wanted to prevent uh, mass Japanese immigration to California, uh, support Australia's uh, uh, white um, Australia policy and its continuation of it, you know, so the Australia First policy. Um, the uh, the Japanese see this as a, a mortal insult, and it's one of the things that. Uh, leads to a profound alienation of Japan to the rest of the Euro- um, European and American powers. The Australian Labour Party uh, renounced their um, support for the policy in 1965 and the following year the Federal Immigration Department uh, changes the Migration Act um, which allows, though does not encourage, large-scale non-European migration. Um, and this is uh, the beginnings of a kind of a much more multicultural society in Australia that can be observed now. If Vietnam presented a worry to Australia, then China was certainly the, the epicentre of Australian concerns in the 1960s, uh, particularly on the political right, which has always been extremely active um, in Australian politics. Uh, you only need to look um, at the development of almost of kind of uh, proto-fascist parties uh, on the right um, in Australia in the late 1930s. Um, the uh, Australia's kind of most inglorious and probably most incompetent and lazy general, uh, Blamey, uh, was had his um, was kind of tied up in this sort of politics um, uh, before the war, and um, all sorts of nefarious activities during the war. So um, the view that um, the Australian uh, political right had was that um, subversion and communism was spreading from China southwards. Um, the uh, radical left um, saw China as being a, a potential, from 1949 onwards, a, a potential ally, particularly the Communist Party of Australia, who sent activists to China in the 50s and 60s 
for training, um, which um, is a, a really interesting facet of a party behaviour because these were parties um, affiliated um, via previously via Comintern and then following uh, Comintern via um, other means to uh, Moscow and the Sino-Soviet split um, puts immense pressure um, on any affiliation to China, but you obviously had Australian communists recognising the validity of Maoism as opposed to Marxist-Leninism. So between 1968 and 71, um, the, there is this obviously wave of uh, radicalisation in politics in Australia, um, so, so much so that you have uh, similar kinds of countercultural actions that you see in um, America, um, protesters seizing the US consulate in Melbourne. And they are um, profoundly influenced by the Cultural Revolution in China, um, or the version of the Cultural Revolution that they get. Um, any um, reasonable scholar of the Cultural Revolution probably has precious little positive things to say about it, but it didn't mean that in the 1960s and 70s that there weren't um, Europeans, Americans and Australians uh, looking to Mao uh, as an example uh, of uh, how to reorder society. Much has been written, for example, about the appeal of Mao to French students in 1968. One student activist in Australia said... "Um, The Cultural Revolution in 1967 looked like Mao had gone to the masses. Young people were revolutionists, uh, as if the same thing happening in China was happening in the West. Well, that's quite a, um, I suppose, an understandably naive claim to make. Uh, You know, none of us are in full command of the facts when events are, are occurring. But it's it's important to recognise that there are powerful distinctions between Mao's Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s and countercultural activity um, in the West uh, during uh, the same period of time. Much of Mao's countercultural activity is profoundly state-led. Mao it was inspiring students to behave in particular ways, and after them, um, he fosters essentially. Uh, a civil war in in China. Um, The same cannot be said for um, students um, seizing uh, parts of of Paris or Chicago or, in this case, uh, Melbourne. Australians saw China um, in the 1960s as a source of, mainly, I suppose, of nightmares, but some looked upon it as a source of inspiration. Um, one um, clothing worker in Victoria in 1970 wrote, Whoever wants to know a thing has no way of doing so except by coming into contact with it, that is, by living, practising in its environment. Uh, and this meant that uh, youth, young people should go to China as a delegation to gain knowledge and experience of how Chinese people live and work um, with Mao Zedong thought. And these uh, interactions did happen, and they were closely monitored by Australia's security services. Um, Travellers going back and forth to China um, were seen in kind of rather predictable Cold War terms. Uh, Gough Whitlam himself, the Labour leader, travelled to China in 1971, um, just prior to Nixon's visits to China, 
Um, and the, I mean, Nixon, for example, uh, is seen as kind of bulletproof because he is uh, a staunch anti-communist, whereas Whitlam was obviously uh, criticised as he was a figure on, on the left of Australian politics and seen as, as uh, sympathetic and kind of treasonous. And if it was difficult for Whitlam to uh, visit to China without being criticised, then the uh, uh, Aboriginal peoples in um, Australia who uh, hoped to uh, connect with radical countercultural and Maoist politics um, uh, were even more vilified. Um, the uh, development of an Australian Black Panther Party in 1971 um, and the um, link, the attempts by Australian Aboriginal groups to uh, appeal to Maoist China um, were seen, uh, were treated both with kind of uh, ridicule and fear um, uh, by the by majority white Australian society. China, of course, had precious little interest in the struggles of Aboriginal peoples, despite Mao's protestations that his revolution would liberate the Third World and uh, also liberate um, colonially oppressed peoples worldwide. When it came to having friendly relations with the or friendlier relations with the Australian government and therefore uh, trading connections, um, it was uh, there was no question whatsoever that China. Uh, would embrace the struggles of Aboriginal peoples, realpolitik as ever triumphs. Anyway, listen, I'm going to leave it there from, um, for now. I want to talk more about Australia in the near future. If you want to read more on this subject, read um, John Puccini's uh, excellent essay, Australia, the Long 1960s and the Winds of Change in the Asia-Pacific. And you can get that on um, academia.edu. Um, and also remember, if you can give us a vote or a like or, you know, a thumbs up or some description on the iTunes, um, the iTunes Explaining History uh, page, um, that would be fantastic because it really helps this podcast to grow. Um, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.